the most well-known conversion in all of Scripture. Now, I would say that this is the most important conversion in all of Scripture, but I actually think that that would say that some conversions are more important than others, and the Bible makes clear to us that when one soul comes to Christ, all of heaven rejoices. But we all will have a certain amount of familiarity with this text, and we all know things about it, but surely just because of its, the, um, the amount of knowledge we have about it doesn't make it any less important. Now, when we understand what we've already read and what we know about who the person of Saul was and the persecution that Saul was inflicting on the church, it's going to require a lot of context for us to understand just who Saul of Tarsus is. Now, there are some things that we are told about Saul that we have probably generally accepted to be true, but when you read the Bible that it doesn't actually say some of the things that we believe are probably true about Brother Saul. One thing you may notice is that there is no line of demarcation when God changes the name of Saul from Saul to Paul. In fact, the reason his name changes is because as Paul less and less um, identifies with his Jewish ancestry, he relinquishes the name Saul, which was to tie him back to the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, we know, produced the first king of Israel, that being Saul, which is why he was named for him. So as Paul is converted and as he spends more time amongst Romans and Greeks, we're going to see that he does not use that name anymore. But no, God doesn't change his name. It's a funny part of the story, but it's not really true. He doesn't actually change his name. But I want to give you some background before we begin about Saul. Now, we have already seen Saul come in our text because we saw him orchestrate the killing of Stephen. He assassinated Stephen. He stoned C. Stephen just because Stephen was a believer. He was persecuting the faith. So we do know that he is diametrically opposed to the gospel. That we do know about Saul. But we may not know a lot about how broad he is. Now, what you should know about Saul is that Saul is born to a Pharisee father, and he's born in Tarsus. Now, not only is he born to a Pharisaic father, but his father was also a Roman citizen. But then culturally, Paul was Greek. So as far as culture, as far as ethnicity, as far as wisdom and knowledge, Paul would run the gamut. Now, when he was about 13 years old, he gets sent to Jerusalem in order to study under Gamaliel, who is the most renowned teacher of the day, who was teaching them, specifically Paul, how to be a Pharisee. Now, this is really important in the life of Saul because he's going to prove to advance and grasp and understand the Jewish customs and the ideologies more than anybody else. He is going to be one of the most intelligent men that we've ever known, so intelligent that when he is in Tarsus, Tarsus is known for having some of the best universities, that of which Saul was able to attend. 
So when we understand who Saul is, and this is going to be very important later for people who don't believe that any of these things are real. This is going to be very significant towards the end of this sermon. I'm going to bring this all together just so we can understand just how real all of these encounters were, but just how well known Saul was. But I would tell you, because Saul is so well known, because he is so intelligent, because he is so popular among the Jews, but also among the Greeks and also among the Romans. If you would have polled everybody in Tarsus, not just in Tarsus, but in Rome and the surrounding Greek cities, if you had said the least likely person to ever be converted to Christianity and Saul would have been number one. He would have been the number one person that everybody would have said, I believe anybody would be converted except for Saul. Now, the reason that is, is there's this weird marrying, and we looked at it a few weeks ago, between the the intellect of who Paul was, but also his fierce religiosity that burned so deeply in him. There's this weird connection that happens with how smart he is on top of the fact that he's defending the customs of Judaism. So I want to dive deeply here because I want you to see like they would have seen. The reason Saul's conversion has such an impact on all of us, so much so that the entire New Testament almost is written by him because of his conversion is because God chose him specifically, the person that almost no one would have believed could be converted. And that the people who saw this conversion happen because they knew who he was, many still didn't believe him. That's going to be the centerpiece of our focus today. But it's also going to be extremely relevant for our own lives because I do believe there's a hint of conversion in all of us that should be a little unbelievable to somebody. Let me tell you, sometimes I can't believe I've been converted. I know myself more than anybody else, and there are days when I look back at who I was and think, my salvation surely is not my responsibility, and it is, in fact, a miracle because only God can change me. So we're going to look at that today, and we're going to look at as we contrasted what a false conversion looks like last week, this week we're going to look at what true, real conversion looks like. And so it's a simple message today. It's changed. Changed. Let's jump to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing murderous threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word, Lord. It is a simple but important reminder that we all must be changed. God, if we have truly come into saving faith, God, then there must be a definable change that has happened in our lives, God. It must be evident not only to us, God, but it must also be evident to all of those who are around us that we have in fact changed, God, that you have created in us new people. That we are not who we used to be, God, but that we are new, that we have been changed, that we have been redeemed. So, Lord, as we listen to this today, my prayer is that you will remind us of what change and conversion truly looks like. And that if there's anybody who isn't changed, that this will lead them to change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so... We are introduced, as I said, to Saul, and as we are reintroduced to him, he will become essentially the main character in the rest of Acts. From this point on, he will be the main character for the majority of our time in Acts. We are brought to him, as you remember, as Stephen is being stoned because he was the one who was primarily responsible for the stoning and the assassination. Now, some of you may wonder, or may not, but some of you may wonder, you know, we've seen some other events like last week. Since the stoning of Stephen, we saw Simon the magician become a false convert, a counterfeit. And in between that time, it seems like a lot has gone on just for Luke to pick right back up where he left off. So let's explain what's happening here. You may remember, I've mentioned to you before that 
Luke is sometimes writing from his personal account, so things that he actually witnessed that happened, he's sometimes writing about those. But the other things that he's writing about, the events for which he wasn't present, he is writing from the primary account of one Paul. You remember there were events, there were insights that he is given that he normally wouldn't have been there for. That's because as Paul is going to later be put in prison, he's put inside of a Roman prison. It is Luke who is going back and forth in between Paul and the churches acting as a liaison, as a communicator between what was going on. So some of the events that he writes about, he writes them when they happen, as they happen. But many of these events, and this is one of those accounts, he writes from the very mouth of Saul, now Paul. He is writing this account of Paul's conversion straight from his mouth as he is going back and forth into prison to visit with Paul. Now, that means that this is written years beyond the time that it had happened. And Paul was actually a broken and crooked man by the time Luke is actually writing this. He's described as being bent over because he can't even walk straight because of all the abuses that he has suffered at the hands of the people who wanted to stop the ministry of Christ. So when we look at this, we see that there is a communication that is happening between Luke and Paul, and they are completing the narrative of what's happening throughout the entirety of Acts. Now, is where he picks up here that is very interesting, it says that while Saul was still breathing murderous threats, now, it appears as if he's murmuring to himself, murderous threats, but the way this is actually describing is not murderous threats that are being breathed out, but is murderous threats that are being breathed in. Which means that the entirety of his existence, his life, is defined by his desire to kill Christians and see them slaughtered. In fact, that's the very reason that he's even on this journey in the first place. He is on this journey to Damascus because he has gotten word that there may be Christians in Damascus. Now, he's not even sure that there are Christians there, but just so he doesn't risk it, he's on his way to Damascus. Now, we are told here that he had just received letters from the synagogue of the high priest. But we don't know what those letters are, do we? I can tell you what those letters are. These are letters of extradition. So what these letters would do, these were letters of the names of the people that belonged to each individual synagogue and all of those people where they lived. And what Paul wanted to do is go in and get those letters so he could find the people who had probably started going to the way or to, who had become Christians so that he could go get them extradite them from wherever they were, bring them back into Jerusalem just so he could beat them. He even confirms this for us in Acts 22 through Luke and said how he would go into the synagogues and search out the people who were Christians and drag them out, men and women, and beat them and abuse them. So the whole purpose is that he is this Roman citizen 
who has enough insight with the high priest to get everything that he needs in order to kill and persecute Christians. And while he's doing this, while he's fully set up in his mind that he's going to go kill Christians, he's going to go drag them out and bring them back, beat them and abuse them, while he's on the road to Damascus, something happens. Jesus Christ appears to him. And that brings us to our first point today. The irresistible call of Christ. The irresistible call of Christ. This is such an essential component to the nature of Paul's call, but it's also essential to the nature of the call of every one of us who believes. Many of us don't realize this, but let me break some news to you. The call of Christ is an irresistible call. It's irresistible. There is not a single person who's ever been called into right relationship with Jesus Christ who's ever been able to withstand it with their will. Now, there are always these people who think, well, I chose the Lord, I chose him, I found him, I picked him. We cannot resist his will. He absolutely can and will resist the will of us. Now, I believe, obviously, in the five points, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. What does irresistible grace mean? That means there is nothing that I could do to resist the, sa the saving call of Christ. But I want you to see the nature of the call. As he is walking with the men who are with him, no horse in sight, by the way, he always think he fell off a horse. There's no horse here. But as he's walking, there is a light that is shown bright from heaven all around Saul. Now, the reason it's important to note this light, because every other encounter that we've seen, magnanimous encounters we've seen people have with Jesus Christ or with, with, the, with God appearing to them, it always shows some sort of light. We remember, as Isaiah describes the vision he has of God in the year the king Uzziah died, he described the very glory of God as a train. What's a train? It's like the tail of a wedding gown. And it says, but it doesn't just fill the floor, it fills the entirety of the temple. Or when John is describing God in the new heaven and in the new earth, he says, but there is no sun for the glory of God radiates so brightly that we don't even need the sun. So what we know is that Paul here is describing a real event that happened. Now, there are detractors who say perhaps Paul suffered from epilepsy and he didn't really have an encounter with God. He passed out and thought he had an encounter with God. 
There are some people who said on this journey he had suffered a heat stroke because of the journey that he was on and perhaps he passed out and had a vision and this was all a mirage. But the issue with this is that it doesn't testify to why the men around him also were knocked to the ground. It doesn't testify why these men also were knocked down and could see that something was happening, although they couldn't see what Saul saw. So it's important specifically here that we note that this is a real encounter that Saul has had. Now, let me tell you why we have to focus on why it's important to note that he actually had an encounter. Because there were many people who stand to gain if Saul is not really converted. One of those groups later on will be the false apostles who said that Saul was not really an apostle and Jesus Christ had not really appeared to him. That's why in Galatians he defends himself and he says, have I not seen the risen Lord? He was legitimizing his apostleship. But there are going to be other people, both Christians and Jews, who are going to say, just as Ananias said, but I've heard about this man. And that is an unbelievable testimony, one that nobody can qualify. So what does God do? God not only sends a vision to Paul, but he also sends a vision to Ananias. And Ananias says, I know who this man is. I've heard about what he does. And God says, yes, but I've changed him. And he is going to reach people, Gentiles. He's going to be placed in front of kings. And he's going to suffer for my name's sake. So not only does God convert him, but he gives a witness who wasn't even there. But I love what we see here. When Jesus appears to Saul, he doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, this is interesting that he makes this persecution, a personal attack against himself. Now, there are plenty of people who see things like this and they say, well, I don't think it's fair that God would go out of his way to appear to Saul. If he appeared to me that way, I would believe. If he knocked me down, if I saw a light, if I heard the voice, if I saw him, I would believe. But let me tell you what you're doing. You're assuming, or rather presuming upon, your own righteousness. You're assuming that if anything were any different, that you would have been converted. But let me tell you something. Let me show you something about Saul. This is not the first encounter Saul has with the gospel. This is not the first opportunity he has to be converted. 
How do we know that? Because he heard a perfect recitation of the gospel from Genesis all the way to where they were. And what did he do? He killed Stephen anyway. So you say, but, but what about, but he had already heard the gospel. His heart was already hardened towards the gospel. The only thing that is different about this conversion is that now it's time. There is nothing about our salvation that is up to us. It is God who breaks through the wall of our resistance, moves our wills out of the way and saves us against our wills. It's irresistible. It's irresistible. Now, he comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And the difference with this encounter than when he heard the gospel preached by Stephen is this time it was personal. This time, for the first time, he knew that his life was in direct violation of God. And he's only able to see this because what happens? The Bible says that the scales were removed from his eyes and his eyes were opened. The only way that we can see the truth of the gospel is not because we open our eyes, it's because God must open our eyes. And that's what happened. And what happens here is there is a double usage of the name of Saul by Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This double usage of the name of Saul, we have seen commonly, but specifically when Luke uses the double usage of the name, that means that this person is about to be reprimanded by God. We have seen the double name used with Martha. We've seen it used with Jacob, with Samuel, with Eli, with Moses, and with Absalom. So there is an intense emotion behind the call that Saul receives. And as he hears this, it prompts him to ask this question. Who are you, Lord? Now, he's not saying Lord because he has any clue that it's Jesus. But he does know that this is some sort of miraculous and divine encounter that I'm having. He has been totally blinded here. And while the other men may have seen the flash of light and while they may have heard the voice, but Paul is the only one who's having this encounter with the Lord. And he's about to realize that. And that brings us to our second point for today. The immediacy of regeneration. The immediacy of regeneration. When Jesus reveals himself here to Paul, he tells him that he is Jesus who, is, who he's been persecuting, but he also gives him instructions. As he introduces himself, he says, yes, you have been persecuting me, but then he also tells him, go but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Why is it important that he's giving him instructions? 
It's important that he's giving him instructions because you might remember when Jesus was calling the disciples as he walked through this through Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and he pointed to the disciples. All he told them was, follow me. And what did they do? The Bible says immediately they dropped their nets and they began following him. Now, the dropping of their nets is not them just dropping the hobbit, but they dropped their careers in order to follow Jesus Christ. That is what they did. So the conversion that they had was immediate. It is the same case with Saul here that when he comes into this one on one encounter with God, he gives him instructions, meaning he's already been converted. He has already been regenerated. That is the nature of salvation, people. There are so many people today because we don't trust in the efficacy of God's salvation that is one step, then two steps, then three steps, then four steps. There is one step, and the Bible says that Jesus has already done that step for us. And that when he regenerates us, we are changed in an instance. Now, sanctification... That is the lifelong process that we will always go through when we are becoming less like ourselves and more like Christ. But the moment that he saves us, that's it. It is done. There is no other step. We have been regenerated. We have been made new. It is the instantaneous nature of the call which produces instantaneous change. That is what salvation is. That is what it means to be converted. Regeneration is the new birth of unbelievers who are born again. And this birth is just like our natural birth. Think about it. In your natural birth, when you were born, you didn't do any of the work. You weren't in labor. You weren't having contractions. You didn't do any of the work. You were born passively against your will. In the same way, when you are born again, you don't do any of the work. Jesus Christ has done all the labor. He did all the work on the cross, and we are born against our wills. There is nothing we can do to resist it. That's the beauty of regeneration. You want to say, well, how do I know? How do you know that we are born again against our wills? How do you know that we can't resist it? Because anybody that's born again, God had to permeate their hatred of him. The Bible says that there is none who seeks after God. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. Which means if he has saved you, he saved you when? While you were yet sinners. Who does the Bible say that God justifies? God justifies the ungodly. Which means when I was an opponent to Jesus Christ, he withstood my hatred of him. And he saved me anyway. That is what it means to be changed. If you are a Christian, salvation is a one-time, singular, irrevocable moment 
Nobody can take it away from you. There is no process. There are no steps. When God makes you new, you are new. He shows us that at the moment that the light flashed and Paul heard that voice, whether he knew it or not, he was a brand new man. How do I know it? Because he gives him the command of a disciple. Now, he's not mature. He's not a well-versed believer. But he is changed. Saul begins with a a letter from the high priest to go get Christians. Saul begins this ministry with a different mission and a different commission But then Jesus Christ disrupts the commission that he was on. He disrupts his mission and he replaces the mission that he was on with a brand new mission. That should be what has happened in the life of every single one of us who says that we are Christians, that we were on a definable course, a track of destruction, and Jesus Christ intervened and he redefined the meaning of the entirety of our lives. Let me tell you something. Christianity changed. Jesus is not like the little knapsack that we pack of our old selves and we take the pieces of who we used to be and bring it along with us on this new journey. That is not the call. The call is to throw away everything that we used to be before we came to Christ, throw it away, burn it, and become new people in him. We're not called to take a long haul. You know, God, I know you're changing me, but I need to keep this sin and that sin. No, when he comes in, people, he doesn't renovate the house. He completely demolishes it. He doesn't leave studs. He doesn't even leave the foundation. He wrecks that thing. He ruins it. And then he builds us up the way that he wants us to be built. That is what salvation is. He ain't some invited guest, people. He's the wrecking ball. He came to destroy everything that you thought you were apart from him. That's why I can't stand this little passive Jesus that people, you know, if you invite him in. Oh, you don't invite him in. He knocked the door down and he comes in. That's who Jesus is. He is Lord and Savior. Too many of us want to be who we were with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on it and think that we're going to have enough to get in heaven. That's not enough, people. You don't just sprinkle, sprinkle him on as some sort of glittery accessory so that people can brag about how good you look with him. If Jesus that you're sprinkling on ain't on the inside, then you ain't got him at all. It is more than putting an old man to bed. It is more than just letting the old man sleep. It is driving a stake through the heart of our old selves so that our resurrected selves can live. That is change. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified. And they have crucified the flesh with its passions And his desires. 
That is what change looks like for us and nothing less. It is not a mere hospitalization of our old salespeople. It is a full-blown funeral service. It is a eulogy. We must die to who we were. We know that there is nothing that will please God in our flesh. But I do realize that everything that I'm saying is completely antithetical to what the world says today. I'm saying we must forsake the old man. We must get rid of who we shouldn't be. We should lay aside the things that don't belong. The world tells us, if you don't accept me the way you are, then I don't need you anyway. The world says, take it or leave it. So I realize why people resist the gospel, why they hate the truth, because it's telling them everything that they don't want to hear. That no, you are not the source of righteousness in your life. You are not the source of truth. But there is an external truth, namely God, that we will all one day be judged by. It's the reason why our society is ripping apart at the fabric. Because if you just can't accept me the way that, you, that I am. So think about when you take that same thought into a marriage. Resistant to change. We don't change. It's the way that I am. I'm not changing for anybody. Think about when you take that same thought to a job. Think about when you take that same ideal everywhere you go, that change is a terrible thing. Change is a wonderful thing. As long as Jesus Christ is the source of that change. And let's be honest, anything that's not changing is dead. If you are indeed a Christian, there can not only be the immediate change that happens in conversion and nothing else, but there is also the constant change and ongoing sanctification that should be happening in your life. So this is not to say, well, I had a moment and I became a believer and that moment was true. And there has been no progression in your walk. There has been no growth, no sanctification, no Christ-likeness. It is not this or that. It's both. You must be changed and you must be changing. That is what salvation and sanctification looks like in the life of a Christian. If we as Christians cannot look at our old selves and know that there is a line of demarcation between who we were and who we are, then there is no change that has happened at all. If you can't look back and say, that's who I used to be, that's who you still are. Point number three, I found a point for the day. There's a change in purpose. There's a change in purpose that happens in the life of Saul, but there is a change that happens in every one of us, not just his life. Notice that when Saul says he rose from the ground after seeing the bright light, it says that his eyes were open, but he couldn't see. I found it interesting that Luke makes note that he opened his eyes, but he couldn't see. 
It seems that he is saying that Paul's long-standing blindness, that being his spiritual blindness, his spiritual condition, was healed. So for the first time in his life, spiritually, he can see. Yet God has caused him to be blind naturally. So he replaces spiritual blindness with natural blindness. In that moment that Jesus knocks him down to the ground and asks him why he was persecuting, he was regenerated and made into a new man. And so his eyes are finally open, but yet he can't see. And so I happen to think that perhaps Luke isn't just talking about physical blindness here. It seems that he is knocked down, his eyes are open, but he can't see because the path that he was on has been changed. The vision that he had for life, the purpose for his life has been changed and he has been given new vision and new purpose by God. And so what happens to him? For three days, he sits in the dark. He doesn't eat and he doesn't drink blind. Completely dependent on God. And God is giving Ananias a vision telling him that he will be the one who restores his sight. And when he does, the Bible says, then the scales fell off of the eyes of Paul and he realized and could see clearly that God had given him a new purpose in his life and that was to devote himself to the very thing that he was trying to destroy. Listen, if your salvation has not caused a complete change in the course that your life was on, then what's happened? If salvation has not totally redefined you, if salvation hasn't called people to question, how do you change? Not you. If your salvation is a salvation that people tell you at your uh, school reunions that, oh, yeah, you're just like you was in high school. Um, this salvation, this change should cause you to look like a completely new person. But I love it. I love when Ananias is told who's coming to him. He says, God, do you know who this man is? Because I do. I know all the things that he's done. I know all the things that he's guilty of. And God says, yes. But the man that you know of, I killed him. I killed the old man. This is a new man. And he says that the confirmation that he is truly saved, is that he's going to suffer many things because of his salvation. He will take the gospel to Gentiles. He will take the gospel and he mentioned that he's going to take it to kings. I'm going to pause right here and bring something else up that I said I was going to bring back up at the beginning. Because there are people who think that 
this stuff isn't true. There are people who think that Saul didn't actually see this stuff that happened. But Saul, Paul, appears before three historical characters, these of which we don't deny their existence. Who were they? I've mentioned them before. He appears before Herod Agrippa. And when he gets to Herod, Herod says, your great learning has made you mad. Why does he say that? Because like I told you at the beginning, Paul wasn't just recognized for being a Jew. He was being recognized for being one of the smartest men in that community. And when he gets this new testimony and it puts him before Herod, and Herod already knows who he is. He says, man, you used to be smart. If this was a lie, do you think they would have really used the name of Herod Agrippa? Who, by the way, would have had their heads cut off, even if it was true? But they did. But it doesn't stop there. He then appears, and we're going to see this later on, to Felix, the governor. Now, Felix says, I don't have anything to accuse you of, but I can't just let you off the hook. You told me you wanted to go to Caesar. So what happens? Not only does he appear before Herod Agrippa, not only does he appear before Felix the governor, he makes it all the way up to Caesar. And y'all want to tell me you think this is a lie? You think this is not true? You can go read the secular accounts of Josephus who said that all this stuff really happened. Josephus wasn't even a Christian. Perhaps it is our great fear, not that this isn't true, but that it is true. Perhaps it is our great fear that if Jesus Christ can absolutely save a person as wretched as Paul, that I'm not unsavable. Perhaps it's my great fear that I can look at the life of Saul and know that my life is no comparison to that, and that if he saved him, he can most certainly save me, and that he is real. And so we see in Saul, a man who was headed on a destructive path of sin and destruction and anger and hatred, Jesus Christ appears to him, renews him, regenerates him, leads him to repentance, and he is changed. And we never see a time where Saul, Paul, ever drops off. He only gets stronger in his faith. Day by day, month by month, year by year, he becomes stronger and stronger. As his body weakens, he is strengthened in his relationship with Christ. You want to know what change looks like, people? That's it. That is it. 
If we are claiming in this room today that we are Christians and our desires have not been replaced with the desires of Christ, if our hopes have not been replaced with the hope that we have in him, if we have not stopped living for our own pleasures and living for his good pleasure, if we have stopped, not stopped trying to build our kingdoms here and have our eternity secure with him, then the question is, have you really changed? He says, when those scales failed, from his eyes he could see clearly. And so this is, this is it. It's a close. If you see that this is what change looks like, And that in the faithfulness of God, he sanctifies us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that he reverses the course on our lives from the moment that we truly see him as he sovereignly allows us to see him. And that we will lose and forsake everything that made us who we were before him and dedicate our lives to him. And let nothing else stand in between us and him. If it means that you have totally sold out who you are, that's what it is. It's not anything less, people. We don't do anything less than what he did. We have to sell it all. Lose it all. so that we could gain everything in him. That's who Jesus Christ is. And that's what he does. He changes us from the inside out and nothing less. There are no steps. There's no works righteousness. There's no baptism that's going to save you. Only Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word today. God, we thank you that in the life of Paul, you have patterned for us what true change and redemption should look like. Lord, we thank you that you have shown us in our own lives that you are the true agent of change and that there is nothing that we can do independent of you apart from you to change. But God, I also pray that you have shown us that if salvation in our life looks any less than it does look like in the life of Saul, then perhaps this is not real conversion. Perhaps we have not seen real change. And so God, my prayer is that you will for us lead us into real change. That you will bring us into true saving faith, the kind of faith that demolishes the house that we were building, God, and that builds it up in the way that pleases you, causing us to forsake who we were and grasp on to who you are. It is in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.